0: Hi, I'm Devlin Camp. This is season five of Queer Serial, but you don't need to hear any old episodes to join me this season. This season features sensitive sexual content. These episodes detail a true story. Most names have not been changed. All quotes are real. The news audio clips are real. You will hear no voice actors this season, except for one episode later when they perform a real court transcript. This is the true story of a panic that swept Boise, Idaho in 1955, a panic that continues to spread and damage our communities today. The Democrats are a party of pedophiles. They support grooming children. Democrats Democrats support, even Joe Biden, the president himself, supports children being sexualized and having transgender surgeries. Sexualizing children is what pedophiles do to children. Every filthy school board member or teacher who tries to shove their mentally ill tranny freak show down the throats of our precious children. In 1955, there were reports of a homosexual underworld in Boise, Idaho. The people of Boise tried to stamp out homosexuality they discovered it couldn't be done it began with this headline in the idaho daily statesman crush the monster you should crush like the vermin that they are and they are there are monsters under kids beds that are doing these horrific things to them crush the monster. the monster crush homosexuality the year-long investigation that followed shook boise to its foundation Everyone was- Boise, Idaho, population 50,000, the state capital, is usually thought of as a boisterous, rollicking he man's town and home of the rugged westerner, Time magazine writes in 1955. In the downtown saloons of the city, a faint echo of Boise's rip snorting frontier days can still be heard, but its quiet residential areas and 70 churches give the city an appearance of immaculate respectability. Most 1950s Boisians would probably agree with that and love that description. They're proud of their heritage, built on that cowboy mentality and a reverence for their faith. It's an everyone knows everyone kind of town. Every day is routine. Parents send their kids off to school every morning, diners like the Howdy Pardner prep for the same lunch rush every day. Another play is going up in the Little Theater at the Brownstone Boise Hotel. Families are booking their tickets for the weekend show. Every day, the nine to five men in suits and ties head to the Capitol building. Buck Jones walks among them, heading a couple blocks southwest down the tree-lined street to City Hall, where Buck Jones serves as a city councilman. His wife runs the bookshop, also downtown, and their son Frank is headed to West Point Military Academy from her bookstore window mrs jones waves hello to familiar passers-by like june schmitz on her way to work at the club les bois the french spelling of boise that's about as risque as boise gets les bois there are no red light districts or even things like peep shows in this town nothing like the venues you can find in san francisco the gritty venues that i told you about back in season two on the shiny surface of boise Everyday people mill about town, presenting this glossy postcard, come to Boise image. And most Boiseans live unaware of any vice in their town. It would be especially unfathomable for most people to imagine any kind of gathering place for sexual deviance in Boise. It's unlikely that many people in 1950s Boise are reading things like the Kinsey reports, but if one were to do the Kinsey math with the town's population of 50,000, Boiseans would find that at least about 5,000 homosexuals must live among their cookie-cutter houses, possibly married, closeted. Not all of them are actively seeking other gay partners, but of course many are. The oblivious people of Boise have absolutely no interest in studying sexual statistics, though. In fact, they'd rather look the other way, almost willfully unconscious to the existence of such people until a series of familiar names hits the local headlines, shattering their perception of what Time magazine called an immaculately respectable town. A hidden world of homosexuals has actually been operating right in front of their eyes. All at once, this everyone knows everyone kind of town has a mass realization that everyone knows homosexuals. Boy, it's noisy out in Boise, they come down from Butte, Montana. They come up from Santa Ana. They come all the way from San Antonio. They come in from Oklahoma, homie, riding on a pino pony, just to join that noisy, boisy rodeo. Idaho, 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 Idaho. How they'll ever get in quiet, I don't know. It's a steady occupation, be it noisy out in Boise, Idaho. I'm Devlin Camp, and this is Gay Panic, Episode 1, Groomers, or Crush the Monster. Halloween, 1955, Ralph Cooper, a shoe repairman, answers his door, not to trick-or-treaters, but to the deputy sheriff. He asks Cooper to come with him downtown. At the station, the police tell him they have three statements accusing him of homosexual activity with minors. He's never heard of two of these minors, but the third one, Lee Gibson, Cooper knows that name. Cooper is booked and put in a cell. And in comes prosecuting attorney, Blaine Evans, along with chief of police, James Brandon, and the sheriff, Doc House. The three of them ask Cooper where he was on certain dates. They ask about all sorts of open murder cases. Cooper has alibis, but they keep pressing. So he requests a lie detector test. The three of them eventually give up on pinning extra charges to him, but they ask him to sign a confession, which he does consider because the accusation from this minor, Lee Gibson, is true. Prosecuting attorney Blaine Evans and the cops tell Cooper he'll get five to seven years at the most. But then the prosecutor says Cooper can get off from even serving that time and get released to a psychiatrist for treatment for his interest in boys, if he signs this statement. So Cooper signs the prosecutor's statement. It's dawn and Alpha Troop is commuting to war. American soldiers hiking their way through the sweaty jungles of South Vietnam, searching for an elusive enemy. The temperature is almost 100 degrees and the jungle stifles even the tiniest breeze. The following evening, after Ralph Cooper's arrest, November 1st, 1955, the U.S. joins the Vietnam War. It's all that Boisians can talk about that day. The Idaho Evening Statesman comes off the press with another announcement, this one somehow even more shocking. Boiseans held on morals count. Homosexuals have been caught before, but this report is different. Morals? Multiple Boiseans held? The statesman writes, Three Boise men were arrested last night for committing sex acts on teenage boys. And Emery Bess, Ada County Probation Officer, said that the arrests represent the start of an investigation that has only scratched the surface. Probation officer Emery Bess explains to the newspaper that several adults and about 100 boys are involved. Arrests were made as a result of investigation by private investigator Howard Dice. As the paper reports, a private investigator hired, quote, at the request of the client. The townspeople are absolutely floored. It's such shocking news that it's almost hard to stop and probe the article for all the information that it doesn't give the reader. How did these men find these hundred boys? Who are these boys? If it only scratched the surface, how deep does this investigation go? What tipped off a probation officer to start this investigation? And most curiously, who is the client who hired the private investigator? The next morning, the town wakes to some answers and even more questions. The Idaho Daily Statesman hits every doorstep on Wednesday, November 2nd, 1955, announcing, three Boise men admit sex charges. Over breakfast, concerned parents take in every detail. Charged with lewd and lascivious conduct with minor children under the age of 15 are Charles Brokaw, 29, a freight line dock worker, and Ralph Cooper, 33, a local shoe store employee. The third is Vernon H. Benny Castle, 51, local clothing store clerk, charged with infamous crimes against nature. The paper says the men were taken into custody by two deputy sheriffs and no bail has been posted because Ada County's prosecuting attorney, Blaine Evans, now has tape-recorded confessions from all three men. Everyone goes about their day, but now this is all anyone can talk about. The storefronts and housewives and every break room is abuzz with gossip. What did these men actually do? Lewd and lascivious conduct, infamous crimes against nature. What is the difference between those charges? And they still never said who the client was. And where are the police in this widespread investigation? Are they part of it, investigating? And how is the prosecuting attorney involved, but not the police detectives? They have a private detective named Howard Dice, hired by the client. It becomes a literal citywide game of telephone as people begin calling each other up and asking each other these questions and embellishing details and sharing suspicions of other deviants. Before the next newspaper can be printed, word is a large, well-functioning organization of secret perverts is all over town whispering in the ears of our children. The story is not just salacious, which can be fun, but it's also dangerous to us. Our children. It's personal. All day long, the phones ring constantly at the police station, at the Statesman newspaper offices, and at Boise High School, with concerned Boiseans. They all want the police to take action. At the Howdy Partner, a local drive-in diner, Al Travelstead follows the story and overhears all the gossiping. By evening, his diner is busy with drive-in customers parked around the building, ordering burgers and watching the girls who dance in the rooftop floor show lit by floodlights, right beside the restaurant's 25-foot-tall sign reading Howdy Partner Diner. It's like the most 1950s thing you've ever seen. Check it out on my Instagram. The Idaho Pioneer Statewide once wrote about the girls and the diner's rooftop performances, saying, This show is gaining publicity far and near. Al Travelstead is indeed a genial host, a handsome, hearty individual who has an endearing habit of calling a person by his name, whether he knows it or not. Travelstead's Diner is a much loved establishment of Boise. The Travelsteads also own a dance studio in town, the Travelstead School of Dance. With his wife and two kids at home, Al also can't stop wondering throughout his shift at the diner today how deep this investigation will go because he has a lot to lose. Where are the investigators looking, he wonders. A shoe repairman, Cooper. A clothing store clerk, Castle. A freight line worker, Brokaw. They could be looking in Julia Davis Park. There's plenty of cruising in the tea rooms—the toilets, that is— and sometimes in the park you can find a hustler and get a blowjob for anywhere from a nickel to a few bucks. Young guys, mostly high school boys, find it to be pretty reliable money. Maybe the investigators are watching the YMCA. The same goes on there. Or the library bathrooms. Or the bus station. Or the bookstore. But Emery Bess isn't a plainclothes policeman, hiding behind a two-way mirror in the park bathroom, looking to arrest homosexuals. He's a juvenile probation officer, talking to the press as though he's in charge. So, juveniles on probation must have reported these men then? Right? The paper says Bess is investigating alongside a private eye named Howard Dice, who was hired by a client. So, assuming everything the newspaper says is fact, this supposed client must be in charge of where the probation officer and his private eye look. It's unlikely that this client would be involved with the police. They wouldn't hire a private detective. They have their own, and the police actually need to look more effective for the public, especially the prosecuting attorney, Blaine Evans, because citizens are looking to him and the police for action. To keep his job, Evans needs to push his own narrative in the story of this investigation, and he'll find his opportunity. Meanwhile, the probation officer, Emery Bess, comes to his boss with a tip about a prominent businessman in Boise. Bess needs approval to move forward on investigating him. The next morning, Thursday, November 3rd, citizens wake to a call to action. Crush the monster, the Idaho statesman's headline shouts. This paper usually underplays on crime, but today is different. The statesman writes this panicked statement. Disclosure that the evils of moral perversion prevail in Boise on an extensive scale must come as a distinct and intensely disagreeable shock to most Boiseans. It seems almost incredible that any such cancerous growth could have taken roots and developed in our midst. It's bad enough when three Boise men, overhauled and accused as criminal deviants, are reported to have confessed to violations involving ten teenage boys, But when the responsible office of the probate court announces that these arrests make only the start of an investigation that has only scratched the surface, the situation is one that causes general alarm and calls for immediate and systemic cauterization. The situation might be dismissed with an expression of regret and a sigh of relief, if only one could be quite sure that none other than these three men and these ten boys have been infected by the monstrous evil here. But the responsible court officer says that only the surface has been scratched and that partial evidence has been gathered showing that several other adults and about 100 boys are involved. So long as such possibility exists, there can be no rest. Involved in it are the roots of manifestation of juvenile delinquency quite beyond the ken of most welfare advancement agencies or interests. It's a challenge of greater danger than most of us could have thought possible here. It must by all means be met promptly and effectively the operation as projected involves a task and a responsibility that's entirely too big and too sinister to be left alone to a private detective and an officer of the probate court. Until the whole sordid situation is completely cleared up and the premises thoroughly cleaned and disinfected, the job is one in which the full strength of the county and city agencies should and must be enlisted. That's what we demand and that's what we expect. The town panics. The phone lines fill again. To the police, to the papers, to the schools, between mothers, between neighbors. It could be anyone, any number of men, right in front of us. With all the paranoia and gossip and assumptions, it's hard to keep track of the questions still left on the page. Like, why is the newspaper believing every generalization by probation officer Emery Bess? Where did they get this number of 10 boys when the original report only mentioned that it was just minor children, no specified number? And then Emery Best said it was 100 boys. Has the paper found more information that it didn't print yesterday? If so, why don't they just say who gave them the number 10? And still no mention of the client. Is the newspaper now linked to the investigation? Do they know who the client is? Do they know more than they're able to report? And most importantly, Is the paper's panic justified for what they know? Because other papers begin picking up the story and the city obsessively follows every word. from our sponsor. You can listen to the first four seasons of Queer Serial free wherever you're listening to this episode right now. Hear the story of American queer liberation from its roots in the 1920s all the way through to Stonewall and beyond. If you'd like to support my many ongoing LGBTQ history projects like the Randy Wicker and Marsha P. Johnson archives and my documentary currently in production, you can subscribe to bonus episodes of Queer Serial. It's $2.99 a month to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, or if you subscribe for $3 a month, one cent more on Spotify or Patreon, you can also see my queer history archive dives and behind the scenes of my documentary. That gets you everything I've ever posted on Patreon since the podcast started and 2017 and all of my bonus episodes, the Queer Serial spinoff stories, Forgotten Fairy Tales, the White Knight Riot interviews, Mattachine Meeting interviews, Randy Wicker Radio, etc., etc., etc. Every episode of everything I've ever made. And you can go ahead and see everything on that list in the episode guide at queerserial.com episodes. If you'd like to support my queer history work and get some gay merch for it, visit my new Etsy shop. I've got lots of podcast merch from throughout the series lots of unique queer history related items that make cute gifts like postcards from mona's 1930s lesbian bar featured in season two some lovely mugs with rainbow maps that say queer history is world history i have marsha p johnson stickers with her own handwriting that says gay love always from a note she wrote to randy that's in her archive that i've been processing at the lgbt center here in new york My Etsy also has other stickers that say drag is not a crime, with a real photo of drag queens being arrested. And also stickers that you can put in textbooks that lack queer history to warn future readers of that book. Lots of stickers and buttons and fun stuff like that. Etsy.com slash shop slash queerhistoryuplift. There are links to all of this and the bonus episodes and everything in the episode notes here and on my Instagram at queerserial and at queerserial.com. Thank you all so much for your support. You've enabled me to do so much over the past six years. I'm so grateful. Okay, that's it. That's my ad. Enjoy Act Two of this episode. The next day, Friday, November 4th, 1955 the statesman reports castle the clothing store clerk appeared with his attorney J. Charles Blanton Blanton used to work for the prosecuting attorney until recently where their office had prosecuted homosexuals before but he's never seen it get so public the involvement of minors is what brought the public scorn though lots of people assume pedophiles and homosexuals are one and the same Castle entered no plea, the city reads in the newspaper. Brokaw, the freight line worker, requested a preliminary hearing set for November 10th. Cooper, the shoe repairman, pleaded guilty and had no lawyer. The paper describes Cooper, the man arrested on Halloween, as a tall, pockmarked man. He was arrested for playing strip poker with a 15-year-old, Lee Gibson. Cooper has a record with the police and the FBI going back to when he was 13, shoplifting, car theft, grand theft, first-degree burglary, and forgery. The court records describe more of Cooper's background. In 1951, the defendant was convicted in the probate court of Ada County for contributing to the delinquency of minors. This offense had to do with liquor. However, Judge Jackson, as a condition of his release, required that the defendant stay away from young boys. The prosecuting attorney's office has also been informed that this defendant had sexual relations with other minor boys, aside from those he has admitted. One young man has informed us that while working at the shoe repair shop where Cooper was employed, the defendant had homosexual relations with him. That he had brought and provided liquor for himself and three other young boys, and that on one occasion, the defendant took the said boys on a trip to Kuna Caves. During which trip, they drank the liquor he had provided, and during which trip, he committed homosexual acts on their persons, involving the use of his mouth. The statement with reference to the Kuna Caves incident is corroborated by statements given to our office and by other young men who supposedly also made the trip. In addition, the prosecuting attorney's office has signed written statements from other young men describing the homosexual activities of the defendant with respect to them. The defendant has stated that he desires psychiatric treatment and would like to discontinue homosexual activities. Although he denies certain of the charges made against him in the above referred to statements with reference to the two incidents first mentioned. He has been open and cooperative in providing this office with information. The reporter, who will search through these court records a decade later, trying to piece together the first few days of Boise's sex panic, trying to understand how it all got so out of control, he'll find it curious that none of the statements by these boys is included in the file. No depositions by the accusers or the accused, And why was a crime committed on July 1st, 1954, and December of 53, suddenly being investigated over a year later in 55? What caused this roundup to begin on Halloween night? Judge Merlin Young says to Cooper, the shoe repairman, it appears that all of your actions have been with teenage youths. No one speaks on Cooper's behalf. He pleads guilty because prosecuting attorney Blaine Evans said he would get psychiatric help for his problem. The sheriff takes him back to the jail and says he'll probably get seven years at a mental institution. When he's in jail, cops search Cooper's house without a warrant, taking every photograph. Family, friends, everyone. There are no photos of Lee Gibson or anyone Cooper has had any sexual contact with, but they take all of his photographs and he'll never see any of them again. Everywhere Judge Merlin Young goes in town, people are basically saying to him, I hope you really let those perverts have it. Judge Young will later say it was a difficult atmosphere to work in, with all that pressure. He'll admit he didn't even know much about homosexuality at all, or the ways homosexual people are sometimes unjustly prosecuted. But sometimes justly prosecuted. He tries to study up. It's a lot to learn, to really understand in just a few days. Almost a week later, Thursday, November 10th, Boiseans pick up the Evening Statesman. Morals case brings life term. Ralph Cooper was expecting mental health treatment and probably only seven years of it. Judge Merlin Young returned to court and said, by the power vested in me, I sentence you to the penitentiary for the rest of your natural life. Cooper will be in a daze for weeks. Cooper's court file notes, prison warden L.E. Clapp told a reporter that Cooper must serve 10 years of the sentence before he can be considered for parole. And that doesn't mean he will be considered, Clapp said. He stressed that the State Board of Pardons has the power to establish the conditions and that in Cooper's case, even if he would in some future time be paroled, it could only be to a state hospital and not to society. If Warden Clapp believes Cooper needs psychiatric help, Why deny him this and put him in prison for life? They needed to crush the monster. It won't be that easy, though. Cooper isn't the only man Lee Gibson has named, and minors are not the only homosexuals naming names. The next morning, Friday, November 11th, the statesman reiterates Cooper draws life term in Idaho penitentiary. They again mention that this conviction is the result of an investigation conducted by Howard Dice, owner of the GEM State Investigation Service, at the request of a client. With a guilty plea and a conviction on the books, soon the people who put this whole investigation into motion will get closer to their intended target. Probation officer Emery Bess is told by his boss he's off these cases. They're being sent up to the moral squad at the police department. Meanwhile, an employee from the police station stops by the Howdy Partner Diner. They ask to speak to the manager, whose blood runs cold when he sees his ally from the Boise PD. Al Travelstead is tipped off just in time. There's a warrant for his arrest. Travelstead rushes home, packs his suitcase, tells his family goodbye, and runs. That night, probation officer Emery Bess sits in his living room with the lights out, watching out the window with a shotgun on his lap. His young son Ron walks in and asks what's wrong. Emery says to his son, There's a price on my head. A nice car pulls up out front. The headlights click off. Bess and his boy stand still watching. The car sits for a few minutes and starts again and drives away. Emery Bess will be up all night. The investigation as Bess said, has only scratched the surface, and now it's out of his hands. As the city searches for a satisfactory amount of justice to crush this thing, the townspeople and the detectives and the prosecutors and the judges continually return to one of their very first questions. What do these men actually do? How do we know who to arrest? What is lewd and lascivious conduct? What's a crime against nature? These phrases seem quite broad and flexible. A town molded by conformity and a nation totally stewing in 1950s communist paranoia, Boiseans will deem their own friends and family monsters until every last deviant is caught. Next week, a doctor arrives. The Fairyland Parade marches through town, and a house is rented on 16th Street. When you think the noise is stopping, that's when things begin a-popping out in noisy little boy in the Idaho. Boy, it's noisy. Out in Boisey. Okay, I'll leave it there for now. Stay tuned to hear me read some credits if you like. And in the meantime, you can visit queerserial.com or queerserial on Instagram for the complete series episode guide and lots of images and videos from the true history on this podcast. If you want bonus episodes featuring exclusive interviews with queer legends and spin off stories from Queer Serial, you can now subscribe to get the full catalog of bonus episodes for $2.99 on Apple Podcasts it's super easy just visit the queer serial show page on apple podcasts you can also get all of those bonus episodes plus queer history archive dives and exclusive behind the scenes peeks into production on my documentary by subscribing to my patreon now through spotify it's super easy just open spotify and search queer serial bonus shows and there's a whole feed of queer serial bonus shows that spotify feed will also give you access to everything on my patreon or if you just want the bonus episodes you can save a whole penny and subscribe on apple podcasts by the way the documentary i mentioned is basically a sequel project to queer serial it's created by me and jim morrow at viridian coast studios and it's all about archiving randy wicker's gay forest gump of a life and it's about his extended gay family including marsha p johnson sylvia rivera and so many more people whose names deserve to be written into our history the Wicker Family documentary is very much a queer serial movie. You can help support my work archiving Randy and Marsh's materials with the LGBT Center archives here in New York, an ongoing years-long process, and see behind the scenes of that project and its documentary at patreon.com slash queerserial. You can also support my work by shopping in my Etsy store, etsy.com slash shop slash uplift or just by subscribing to bonus episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Patreon. Every little bit of support helps. Okay, thanks for listening. Here are the credits. Resources for this series include John Gerasi's 1965 book, The Boys of Boise, Seth Randall's 2006 documentary, The Fall of 55, and Intimate Matters, A History of Sexuality in America by John D'Amelio and Estelle B. Friedman. Find more info at QueerSerial.com. To learn more about America's history of gay panics and their causes, listen to Queer Serial, Season 1, Episode 4, The Lavender Scare. Music comes from Blue Dot Sessions. This show is entirely supported by subscribers on Patreon and by bonus episode subscribers on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Just $2.99 a month. Thank you. Queer Serial is written, hosted, edited, produced, etc. by me, Devlin Camp. What a cool job. Back next week. Bye.